Hey there. How's your week going? Hey, my week is actually going really well. I have had lots of good family time. I've had time with friends. We had my college roommate and his family over, and we played a whole ton of board games like the nerds that we are, and it was so much fun. And then since then, I've just been getting some chores done. I'm just, I don't know, man. I'm feeling really good. How are you? That's awesome. Yeah, you know what's funny? We've been playing a new game as a family as well. Have you played Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza yet? (laughs) No, but that sounds amazing. It is the simplest, funnest game I have played in a long time. And anybody who can think of a game and name it Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza, they've got something going on. And yes. so I, we've been playing it. I have no idea how to explain it without hand motions, but boy, it is <laughs> fun. It's funny. It doesn't take forever. So you can kind of play it when you don't have a ton of time. It's kind of a low commitment, low energy kind of game. Like, like, you know how apples to apples, you can kind of play no matter how much energy you've got. Cause you Anybody can survive apples to apples and have a decent time. It's one of those kind of games. Uh, so Taco Cat, Goat Cheese Pizza. Okay. That's, All that's right. how I'm doing. We're going to have to incorporate that. We, we're always getting new games, and so that's going to have to make the list. Yes. Yeah, we bought, because of the last time you guys were here, or when you guys were last here maybe, we bought, oh, Dagum, what's the train game? Ticket to Ride. Yes, we bought Ticket to Ride because of you guys. You are welcome. It is a great game, though it does take a level of investment I don't always want to give. Um, So the friends that we were hanging out with, we always play Ticket to Ride. And it's always a real heated competition. It's very, very stressful. And I very frequently win that game. But I did not win this time. I had a great score. But Jessica, uh, we've mentioned you on the podcast before. Props to you. You like killed it on that game. So it was awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm guessing you didn't call to discuss board games. uh, But what did you call to talk about? What's on your mind? Yeah. You know, a podcast about board games would be a different audience, I think, than our audience. I don't know. Comment below. Do you play board games? I hope so. I would love to do an episode on board games, which games I like and when and why, as well as to get not overly controversial, but like I would love to talk about the my upbringing's response to what could have been some great family activities like you know role play things like dungeons and dragons and magic the gathering and things like that i I would be intrigued to have a full-blown game conversation about everything from apples to apples to dungeons and dragons wow that would be interesting and i tell you what since it's not quite our normal topic Let's just release it on Thanksgiving because nobody listens at the holidays. 
<laughs> Clearly, that is true. Uh, but again, unless you want to make this a full-blown games conversation, I'm guessing you called about something else. All right, all right. I'm getting your hint. I'm I am feeling moving on. Glad to 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 ask you about what other things you might be interested all in right. talking about. You're feeling led. Let leave it to the Pentecostal Holy Spirit guy <laughs> to use that kind of language. Uh, so thanks for teeing me up. Yes, I want to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I want to do it really because I'm too Baptist to have talked about the Holy Spirit very much. I don't understand the Holy Spirit very well. Even after going to seminary, the Holy Spirit still feels abstract in some ways. And I don't know that I have a fully articulate, full orbed vision of what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And I am looking to you as my Pentecostal friend, a pastor in the Assemblies of God Church, to inform your Baptist brother who the Holy Spirit is. But I I understand, before we get started, and I've really kind of teed up the conversation in a certain way, before we get started, I don't want to pit the camps against one another, because I think the Baptists have some insight into the Holy Spirit that is useful. I think Pentecostals have some insight into the Holy Spirit that is useful, but I'm not convinced that either camp has a full vision of what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, absolutely. And not just those two camps, right? There are a host of different theological camps within the Christian tradition. All Theological which, neighbors? Yes, absolutely. That, um, bingo, um, that really offer something to this conversation, I think, and hearkening back to a, a theme we hit on all the time, we can either be antagonistic to our theological neighbors, or we can be take a posture of humility and believe that we have something to learn from them. And like you, I'm interested in finding out what do I have to learn, even from a cold-hearted, over-educated Baptist like you. <laughs> so, speaking of cold-hearted, overly-educated Baptists, I was preparing for this episode and trying to think through what is who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And so I turned to a couple of systematic theology books, and Norman Geisler wrote this huge, thick tome of a book— and I looked and looked and looked for a chapter on the Holy Spirit, or even a subsection on the Holy Spirit, and I couldn't find one. This thing is huge. Eventually, I looked at the table of contents again and found that it was appendix number six on page 1,553, and he gave a whole whopping three pages to the Holy Spirit. After 1,500 pages, he could only spare three for the Holy Spirit. And I feel like oftentimes in academia, or at least in my church's upbringing, the role of the Holy Spirit gets about that much treatment. Yeah. So let me 
start off by asking a couple questions. You are winding down your seminary experience, right? Like the vast majority of your classes are behind you. Mm -hmm. What can you list out for me? What theology classes, theology proper, I, not discipleship classes, not Bible classes, but theology proper, what theology classes did you take over your years in seminary? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually didn't take a ton of theology classes. There are a pair of classes that are required of all MDiv students at Denver Seminary. They're listed as TH501 and TH502. And I'm sorry, I don't even remember what the actual title of the class is. It's something like uh, Overview of Christian Doctrine or something like that. And so you have to take these two classes, and it's somewhat of a blending of hermeneutics and systematic theology. So it teaches you what is the overarching narrative of Scripture, what are the principles for interpreting Scripture, and what are some of the main theological categories and how do we understand them systematically. So it kind of blends all three of those questions over the course of two semesters. And so very well done. It was nice to not take them separately. I thought it was much better done together as they did. And then I also took just last term a doctrine of God class, so theology proper. And so Though we didn't get too much into the Holy Spirit in that class, though some, the primary emphasis uh, or the primary avenue that we talked about the Holy Spirit was through uh, the Trinity. So how does that compare to your seminary experience? So from what I remember, I'm reaching back almost two decades here. I had to take a Systematic 1, Systematic 2, Systematic 3 class. Humorously enough, because they were with three different professors, I never finished a full Systematic text because my Systematic 1 professor required us to read Millard Erickson's book. My Systematic 2 professor required us to read Calvin's Institutes. And my Systematic 3 professor required us to read Wayne Grudem. All three, only for the elements that we were referring to in that particular class. Right. Uh, so I've read one-third of each of those books. If you've read one-third of Institutes, I think you get to go to heaven automatically. I tell you what, it is one of the better reads that I had to do in seminary. I just actually reached over to my bookshelf and pulled it down. And first of all, in the index, the Holy Spirit has a giant chunk of different pages that you'd have to go to to learn about the Holy Spirit. But more interestingly, Calvin's Institutes is one of the only systematics at the time that I was in school. A number of great systematics have been written since. But at the time I was in school, one of the primary reasons our professor had us read that section of that particular book is because it's the only systematic that did a proper treatment of prayer. And mm. our professor basically said, I I'm not sure how you can write a systematic without dealing with prayer as a primary theological topic, but this is the only one that did that. So we're going to do, we're going to just go straight to Calvin. 
Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So, and both of us went to seminaries in, in a similar, I didn't go to a Pentecostal seminary and have honestly felt like I was playing theological catch up ever since I entered into the Pentecostal world. You know, I, I grew up in a, a passionately non-Pentecostal context. Mm. And I have grown into a hybrid Pentecostal contemplative. And so a lot of my thoughts on the Holy Spirit come from those places. But we're still doing preliminary stuff here. Put a question, let's put a question on the table. What is the question you want to wrestle with here as we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I think it would be this. If we think about the three members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. I think of the three, Jesus is the easiest to grasp. There are four Gospels written about him, after all. We know a lot about his life. He took human form, for crying out loud. We can relate to the Son very, very well. God the Father is kind of this overarching Godhead idea that I think is still a little less connected, but I think we grasp it a little bit better. Then there's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is nebulous. It's uh, The Holy Spirit is hard to define. So who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do, and why does it matter? in my life, like, like day by day, how would it change my life if I understood who the Holy Spirit was? Hmm. Man, those are good questions. And you know, as I, as I quickly flip to the texts in the Bible that I immediately think of about the Holy Spirit, the hiddenness or the the difficulty in understanding or experiencing or encountering or knowing the Holy Spirit is one theological point we can say is definitely consistent with what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, right? You know, I am caught by a couple of different verses about this. When I think about the Holy Spirit, the first place I flip open to is John chapter 14, where Jesus starts his final teaching in John. It's the longest chunk of teaching that is interwoven with teaching on the Holy Spirit. And the verse I often think about is the one where Jesus says, boy, it's going to be great that I am leaving you because once I leave you, I can send the Holy Spirit. But the verse that I think really captures this idea that you're hitting on is 1417, where Jesus says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. It's the neither sees him that I think is part of an interesting biblical theme here. So the world at large doesn't connect with the Holy Spirit because he is invisible to them. That's where the Gospel of John ends its teaching on the Holy Spirit. But if we go back to kind of early in the book of John, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, to Nicodemus, Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And I think by naturally, we can kind of assume that is the way the people of the Spirit are, because that's the way the Spirit is. And both of those are very vague comments about the almost invisibility of the Holy Spirit that match my life experience perfectly. Yeah, I think as I hear you quote John 16, though, and the fact that the world doesn't understand the Holy Spirit because it doesn't see him or understand him or know him. Okay, I guess I have no problem with the Bible saying something like, the world doesn't get God. But by implication, I feel like I'm supposed to be different than the world. I'm supposed to understand. And so I feel frustrated or I feel behind the eight ball that it says, well, the world doesn't understand him because they don't see him. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I don't understand him because I don't see him. So (laughs) that doesn't make me feel very good. Yeah. Well, and this is where I love the the phrase in John 3, those born of the Spirit, it implies that there is not a category change only. There is a categorical change between those who are born of the Spirit and those who are not. But there is also, you are born into a maturing process, right? Babies aren't born understanding what's going on. And I think we aren't born into the Christian life understanding the the role of the spirit and i think we are i am often leery of people who think they get it too well who can say yep that was the holy spirit and that wasn't that makes me sure but yeah i think there's something to be said for the fact that some people are overly confident in their ability to discern the work of the holy spirit but i also think uh, and I also think you're right. There is something about growth over life, over the your lifespan, and and so you you aren't born into the Christian life knowing a whole lot of things, honestly. But your spiritual parents, or we, as we hopefully are trying to disciple others and be spiritual parents to others, ought to have, I think, a grasp on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, such that we could intelligently pass that along and show why it matters. And this kind of came home for me when I was reading that book that we talked about, Being as Communion, and I was really intrigued by Zizioulis's worldview and understanding of God as a communion. And he talked a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit in that book, but he did so, the Holy Spirit was integrated into his theology in a way that I don't think mine is. I feel like there's all these theological truths, and then the Holy Spirit kind of sits off to the side. But for Zizioulis, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or the official word, pneumatology, is interwoven into his picture of the Christian life, his his theological narrative. And the way he does that is to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus's birth, Jesus's life, Jesus's death and resurrection, 
And not only that, but the Holy Spirit's role in constituting the church at Pentecost and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in the lives of believers ever since. So the Holy Spirit constitutes Jesus's messianic rule on on earth by the immaculate conception of Mary and throughout his ministry throughout his death and resurrection the holy spirit's power is evident through all of that and then the holy spirit constitutes the church forms the church at pentecost with this blessing of inauguration and so this constituting work of the holy spirit is more than just a spiritual enervation or a spiritual enlivening that I think we t- tend to talk about, it's so foundational. And that to me changes things. And I start thinking to myself, wow, I want to have a doctrine of the Holy Spirit that is that integrated into the narrative of Scripture and into salvation history. Absolutely. Well, and for me, it even it has to go back even before that. I think the primary image of the Holy Spirit that I have is from Genesis chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters, symbolizing the chaos, right? The fundamental symbol of what the Holy Spirit does, I think that for me, brings the Holy Spirit and theology and everyday life all together, is that the Holy Spirit is the person within the Trinity that hovers over chaos. And from that place allows creation to happen, whether that is creation of the world or new creation within me or creation of the church, like you were talking about, which I think is what you mean by more than just enlivening. It's not like there was something there that the Holy Spirit brought to life. There was no church and the Holy Spirit created something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the idea of creation, at least for me, is the, the thing that unifies all of what I know about the Holy Spirit. So even when we think about things like the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, which we can get into at some point if you're interested, it has to do with this idea of the Holy Spirit and creation and connecting with the power of God all kind of wrapped up together for me, if that makes any sense. I actually would love to explore that further because I'm not sure that I follow entirely. But so, yeah, I would love to know how you see the charismatic gifts of the Spirit as connected to creation. But before you answer that question, I want to pause and acknowledge to our listeners that here on this podcast, we do not intend to talk about quote unquote controversial things. So we're not going to talk politics. We're not going to talk some of these culture war topics, but we are very interested in pursuing God and pursuing him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we have to wrestle through is the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, because they are present in Scripture. 
Now, some take a view that those are no longer present today. Other people find that they are present, but that they are often misused. There are a variety of different takes on this, but it does not negate the fact that the Holy Spirit is integral to our faith and practice. And I want to hear from you as someone who practices and engages with the gifts of the Spirit, how that has helped be a formational thing for you. And if our listeners take a different theological stance, I want that to be okay, but I also want to hear, I want you to be able to speak freely about your own experience. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I wholeheartedly agree. If I were planting my flag on the theological map, like I said, I'm on the border of contemplative and Pentecostal, and both of those give very different, though I think profoundly overlapping answers to how to engage the Holy Spirit. But I also don't land in that place of, boy, if you don't parse out the work of the Holy Spirit the same way I do, you're missing something. You know, it's very interesting. I was at a the church I grew up in just recently, and it is not a Pentecostal church. And what I found interesting was that I, in the midst of worship, found myself praying in tongues quietly in a way that nobody had any idea that's what was happening, but having no need to have everybody else do that but feeling fully comfortable both in the context and in with, within myself for me to be doing that. And I think that's the space I want to land in theologically. Can I ask just kind of a practical question? Because I think for some of our non-charismatic listeners, the only image that might come to mind for speaking in tongues is a roll in the aisles, pray out loud, lots of repetitive syllables image of what praying in tongues looks like. Is that what you mean, or did you have some other expression? Uh, That's a great question. Um, When I pray in tongues, this is going to be a longish answer, but the practical expression of it is that just like you might in a moment where you are powerfully moved by what is happening, you might pray, right? You might just start kind of whispering to Jesus, thank you, or God, you're amazing, or please work in this person's life, or whatever. I understand praying in tongues not particularly to need to be overly demonstrative or something that needs to call attention to itself. Praying in tongues for me is just one of many ways that I can pray. I can pray by praising God. I can pray by some days shaking my fist up at God and there not being any words whatsoever. I can pray by uh, writing out my prayers. I can pray by reading the Book of Common Prayer. There's just so many different tools in my prayer toolbox, if that makes sense. And praying in tongues is just another one of those tools. And it's the tool that I use when I don't know what to say. And so if you were to be able to hear what I was saying, it would sound to you and it sounds to me like 
sort of muttering a language you don't know, and I don't know either. And in a lot of ways, I think of it as fill-in-the-blank prayer. It is me, and this is where it comes to that idea of the Holy Spirit being the creator. I often find myself praying in tongues when I don't know what else to pray. And I don't feel the need to know what to pray because I have another option, and that option is to pray in tongues, which is ultimately an invitation for the Holy Spirit to completely pray through me, bypassing my heart, mind, and will, and thereby to access prayer, which prayer seems in the Bible to be one of the tools God uses when he wants to work in the world. You know, there, there are moments when God wants to relent towards the people of Israel in the desert. What does he do? He gets Moses to intercede for them. And there are several moments in the Old Testament where there's this kind of language, right? Where either there is someone to intercede and therefore God lets things go or changes his mind on things, or there isn't someone to intercede and therefore God does something different. So so there's this interesting connecting point with God that prayer is. It's inviting God to do on earth what he does, what he is already doing in heaven. So if prayer is a way that we access the power of God into everyday life to channel who God is into this world, then praying in tongues is the ability to see a chaotic moment that is beyond me and invite the Holy Spirit to take the lead in praying because I I have no idea. I love that. That is awesome. I love the fact that you're connecting this with creation, with the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. A number of passages came to mind as you were saying all of that, including, of course, Romans 8.28, or not 8.28, Romans 8.26, where Paul says, you know, the Holy Spirit intervenes. When we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intervenes with groans too deep for words to express. And I think that's in different words, in your own words, that's what you're saying. But I also think of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus is inviting us to pray, you know, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, you're tying all of these things, not just, you know, the much debated and controversial 1 Corinthians 12, here's with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and do they exist today? You're saying this gift, this prayer language is an opportunity to do exactly what Scripture was inviting you to do in other passages that aren't always connected to this debate. And for me, that is really exciting to see that play out in somebody's life. Yeah, and I'll I'll be honest, there is nothing there are no spotlights or angelic choirs when I pray in tongues. There is no sense of a loss of control or a something super spiritual or even supernatural that it feels like to me. You know, my story about so Pentecostals call 
starting to pray in tongues, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we can talk about that language later, but my first experience with being baptized in the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues, uh, I was back in college. I had no idea what the Holy Spirit was about or who he was or whether I believed in speaking in tongues. And I went out one night and had a long conversation with God, the Cliff Notes version of which is, God, you have called me to be a teacher, and that means that my first and highest priority has to be honoring what Scripture says. And so if this whole baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues stuff is real, I don't want any part of it until I've straightened out my theology first so that theology leads rather than experience leads. And I spent the next six months studying the Bible and asking questions and reading book like books like Jack Deere's Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit and Surprised by the Voice of God and all great stuff. And then when I felt good about it, I went back to that same spot another night many months later and said, okay, God, I'm ready to pray in tongues now. And I started praying in tongues and that was that. Um, <laughs> that is such a, I mean, God uses our own personalities as a vehicle for communing with him and, and connecting. And mm -hmm. so I just, that is a Josh from Missouri way to engage with God. That is just awesome. That is you written all over it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, when I, lots of people have different experiences and I, I tell mine not because it should be stereotypical, but because it is so non-stereotypical. I think a lot of times people expect there to be, like I said, angelic choirs and, you know, flashlights from above or something. And it just has never been like that for me. It's always been a very practical, you know, I talked to a husband and wife who are, this literally happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were talking to a husband and wife who came to church for the first time and they have a divorce scheduled in 10 days. What do I pray in that situation with people I don't know anything about? What do I pray? I don't know. Now, I didn't pray in tongues in front of them because I had no idea if that would make them feel uncomfortable. But, but boy, those are the moments that make me want to pray in tongues. Someone who's relapsed 15 times. What do I? I don't know. Yeah, thank, no kidding. Thank goodness I have a way to pray that starts with I don't know rather than surely I know all the answers and I can fix it. Hmm. Wow. You know, that's so fascinating. You jokingly referred at the very beginning to me being cold and overeducated, and that's why I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. But I love the humility that that prayer opportunity is for you. It's, I get to start with I don't know. There's no more humble way to approach prayer. And I just think that's awesome. You have given me a vision of the charismatic gifts that leads to spiritual formation. And I really, really like it. And I also like kind of your overarching vision of the Holy Spirit as connected with creation. Because if we think of creation as ex nihilo, uh, creation out of nothing. And so where there once was nothing, there is now something 
because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And if that's the Spirit mm. hovering over the waters, or if that's Mary not being pregnant and then she is pregnant, or there's no church and now there is a church, or there's no salvation and the Holy Spirit is now a guarantor of that salvation, mm. all throughout Scripture, I think we can apply that lens for understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. Where there wasn't a gift of tongues, there is a gift of tongues. Where there wasn't a comforter, now there is a comforter. Where we lacked sanctification, now the Holy Spirit works sanctification into our lives. All of these things, the Holy Spirit can be seen as an agent of creation. Mm. And I think that's a hook I can hang my hat on. And and that's how it feels to me in prayer. Literally, when I have nothing, the Holy Spirit can create something out of nothing. That's awesome. I love that. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing part of your story and for diving into this conversation on the Holy Spirit. I think we just kind of scratched the surface, but honestly, I've got a, a little takeaway in my pocket. I've, we might have to hit this again when I've had time to digest or integrate this idea of the Holy Spirit being an agent of creation. I think that is so, so helpful to me. So thanks for diving in. Mm, I love it. This is, I mean, what could be more practical than this, right? And and if this is true, one of the things that I've been thinking about even as, I, as we were talking is, you know, I started off saying Jesus said we'd be better off if he was gone because he could send the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is indeed the agent of creation, then yeah, we are better off. How cool is it to know that the Spirit of God, the agent of creation— is walking around in our spirits with us every day. Yes. I mean, gosh, all the way down to like, I lack wisdom. Holy Spirit, come and bring me wisdom. I lack, you fill in the blank. That's such a great prayer to pray to the Holy Spirit, the agent of creation. I, that is cool. I can do that. Yeah. As you said that, even... The, the verse in Psalm, create in me a clean heart, suddenly means something a little different and more rich. Mm-hmm. So, so good. So I want to speak again to the audience. Thank you for hanging in there with us. And I hope that wherever you land theologically, that this conversation has been a help to you in engaging the Holy Spirit for spiritual formation and innervating, enlightening a new way to pray and engage with God. So uh, we invite you to comment, post, tell us about your thoughts and experiences with this podcast or with this idea that of who is the Holy Spirit. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, just search for On the Phone with Josh. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we also have links in our show notes that will talk about uh, any of the resources that we've mentioned today. And we would love it if you would share this or any other of our episodes with a friend and start a conversation of your own. That would, yeah. it would be an honor to help be a conversation starter. Yeah, exactly. So Josh from Missouri, when you're not speaking in tongues, what else are you thinking about? Oh man. Well, I, I read this poem this week. This is by Paul Kennan, 
who I have come to really appreciate recently. He wrote a memoir called In Praise of the Useless Life. He's been a monk for 60 years, and I read his memoir last year, and and he mentions his poetry in it, and I was given a book of his poetry this Christmas, and the very first poem in it, I just loved, and I'm not sure if it will translate, but I'm going to read a little bit to you and then tell you why I love it. I can't wait. This is called Mad Monk's Life Ambition. He says, Sorry, monk that I am, I never amounted to nothing. Did someone lay a jinx on me and say, you'll never amount to nothing? How sad, since I took nothing as my monastic goal. The idea of the poem is that he's constantly trying as a monk, to successfully amount to nothing. But he always thinks he's something. And that's the problem. If you can catch what he's saying, and I'm not sure I'm describing it well, or if the poem quite catches, if you don't have time to kind of read it slowly, but the idea is he's flipping this idea on its head. You'll never amount to nothing. The problem is you can't get to a state of seeing yourself as nothing. Hmm. You're always too stuck on the idea that you're something. And that is a powerful image to me. Yes, it is to me too. I wish I had more to say on it, but that captures my imagination and my thinking really, really well. I think it's what is intended by some of these bumper stickers that have like he and then the greater sign and then I that to me always looks mm. like heck hecky, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it, I think that's what it's trying to capture. But somehow for me, that image doesn't capture, but that poem really does this. I have to become less. He, he is so great. Yeah. But it, even more than that, it's the, the absence of self. Hmm. Ah, that's. Uh, I would love to read that full poem. So tell me again the name of that. That was in Praise of the Useless Life. Is that right? Uh, nope. That's the name of his memoir. This particular poem is called Mad Monk's Life Ambition. All right. I will add that to our show notes resource page, and I might have to look it up myself. So that's cool. It's good stuff. But what about you? What else have you been thinking about? Yeah, well, just today... My college roommate, John, that I mention all the time and with whom we played all sorts of nerdy games, just today, he and I finished translating all of Genesis 1 through 11. And we only Ooh. meet one, yeah, we only meet once a week to translate Hebrew together. So it's been kind of a slow process. It's been like 15 months or something like that, <laughs> taking it like, you know, four or five, maybe six or seven verses every week. And so very slow process, but we finished today and I'm so excited. We're going to move on to the book of Esther, which is going to be really fun. But 
the very end, so we've done all this work for 15 months. We've been translating, talking through the theology, talking through the literature, talking through the grammar, and it's been really, really interesting. But you start to get, I don't know, embedded in the rhythms of the text when you spend that much time with it. And all of that paid off with the very final couple of paragraphs in Genesis 11, because throughout the whole narrative, you see nothing but proliferation. People are proliferating everywhere. There's genealogies of different people groups in different areas and different explanations about how this people group came to specialize in this thing or whatever. And you just see this proliferation of humanity out from the garden all throughout the world in these different stories and genealogies. And when you get to the last part of chapter 11, the genealogy suddenly changes because now we're dealing with Terah, the father of Abram. And all of a sudden their genealogy includes death. None of the other genealogies to this point Mm. had, and then he died and then he died. Instead, it's been and so-and-so lived this long, became the father and so and so of so-and-so, and then they lived another however many years and had other sons and daughters. Next person, same formula. And you see this play out and play out, play out, and now all of a sudden, for the very first time, other than Cain and Abel, the son of Terah, Haran, uh, Abram's brother, dies. And he kind of dies prematurely, like in the presence of his father, in the land of his birth, he dies. And he leaves behind his son, Lot. And then uh, just a couple verses later, Abram is married to Sarai, and Sarai is barren. It's the very first time the word barren is used in all of chapters 1 through 11. And so you see this defective family. Everybody else has been has had these generations upon generations, and they've grown into these big peoples, and they've populated the earth. And we zero in at the very end on the family of Terah, and they stink as a family. Like, they can't even do all the things that they're supposed to do. They die prematurely. They're barren. They kind of cobble themselves together, and they start heading for the land of Canaan. They get about halfway. They get to the land of Haran, not connected to the sun. They get to the land of Haran, and they say, "Ah, that's good enough, and we'll camp out here. So everything just feels aborted. And this suddenly is the family God chooses. It's really stark and really kind of a fascinating, Mm. jarring kind of text. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I I remember some time ago you mentioned that you love translating— and and a big chunk of why is because it forces you to slow down with the text. Mm-hmm. And this is such a good example of things you don't notice if you're not going slow. If yes. you're not paying attention to every single word. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Because I've read this a bunch of times, but I don't know. It felt different. It just, what do the kids say? It hits different. Mm. I don't know what the kids say. Every time I try to uh, get that right, my teenage daughter rolls her eyes. <laughs> I intentionally misused the kids' slang 
just to get the eye roll. It's fantastic. Yes. Well, and we're coming up here. We're having our two young eye rollers join us on the podcast here in a little bit, aren't we? We sure are. Yeah, they can introduce us to all the cool social media stuff and maybe some slang on the, uh, as we go. Maybe we can actually become cool. Yeah, we can. I'm just frozen and speechless at the thought of trying to become cool. I got nothing. I can't even make a snarky comment. I'm just, it's so beyond my comprehension that I got nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, since we'll never be cool, we may as well admit how uncool we are <laughs> with the which Josh question. Which Josh spilled water on his now wife on his first date? And that is me, Josh from Oregon, though I have to say this happened in Missouri. Uh, while we were going to college, Shelley and I, our very first date was a Cademan's Call concert at the school. And I was like, well, okay, we can't just like go on campus for our first date. We have to like make it a date. So we got directions to a coffee shop down in Springfield. And I didn't know the area very well, but I got directions from a local. Somehow we still got lost. And we drove around Springfield very, very lost until the wee hours of the morning. We ended up at a steak and shake at like two in the morning. We sat there and chatted and had a great time. We got some shakes and also some waters. And we were, we were talking and I was gesturing. And all of a sudden, bam, I knocked over this whole tall glass of water all down the front of her. And the waiter came over and was very kind and was like helping mop things up. And anyway, it was quite a disaster. We got back at like three o'clock in the morning, very tired, but with a great story to tell. And you know what? She still married me. So it worked out. Oh, man. Whew. Well, congratulations. You got a good one. And you got the embarrassment out of the way early. Yeah, except I never really got it out of my system. I still embarrass myself all the time. <laughs> I know that feeling. I'm in that club too. Which but, means we'll always have good content for the Witch Josh question. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But, well, hey, are we on for next week? Yep. Can't wait. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. <laughs>